I don't even actually have the question in front of me because we're only dealing with three words today, namely that God is all-sufficient, eternal, and immutable. And I don't know if we'll have time even to get through all three concepts, but hopefully uh, we'll get at least a taste of God's all-sufficiency, eternity, and immutability. Uh, This question, as we saw last week, is asking, what is God? So what type of being is he? What are his qualities or his attributes? Um, We looked at things like his infinity, his spirituality. And so now, all-sufficiency, eternity, and immutability. So uh, let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look into some of the more uh, complex areas of uh, theology. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, the, the mysteries, the deep things belong to you, but the things you've revealed belong to us and our children forever. And we ask that what you have revealed, Lord, that we will seek to mine all the truth that you've revealed to us, that we would know you better um, and adore you for who you are, to see you clearly, that our souls would be enraptured with your beauty and glory. And so we ask the help of your spirit as we seek to dive into some of these depths this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, considering these attributes of God, one of these 20 different things this question tells us about who God is. And the first thing we're looking at is that God is all-sufficient. All-sufficient. Romans 11, 35 to 36 says, Who has first given to him that it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever." and ever. Amen. Uh, we, we looked at God's self-existence, God's independence, which is an aspect of God's all-sufficiency, that he's all-sufficient in and of himself. All existence, all life is through him. But another aspect that is more being driven at by this idea of all-sufficiency here is God's all-sufficiency to us as his people, his all-sufficiency to care and um, help creation to flourish. Uh, The Puritan theologian Edward Lee said this, From God's infiniteness arises his all-sufficiency. He's enough for himself and all things else to make them happy and perfect in their several kinds. His all-sufficiency is that whereby God is of himself all-sufficient for himself to make himself most blessed and to satisfy all other things and make them happy. So God's all-sufficiency is an overflow of his sufficiency for his own blessedness that flows to us. And sometimes there's a misconception that pops up in different church circles is that uh, in creating the world and creating humanity that for some reason or other God kind of needed us. That, that God didn't want to live eternity alone and was, might have been a little lonely. And so he needed to create a world to have these relationships. Uh, th- that's a denial of God's total sufficiency in and of himself. Because we need to recognize that God's creation comes from the overflow of who he is. It's not to fill any deficiency in and of himself. And this, this name, this title of God, God All-Sufficient, is one of the main names used of God in a, primarily the book of Genesis. And it, this is how God reveals himself to Abraham in Genesis 17.1, which says, When Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. Uh, the, the Hebrew transliteration is El Shaddai, 
El Shaddai gets translated often as God Almighty, but more recent studies that have actually looked at sort of the, the verbal root would say probably a better translation is God All-Sufficient. Uh, the, the, the term Shad actually coming from the idea of, of a mother uh, nursing her child. So it's that sort of sufficiency that all the thing, everything the child needs for, for its initial growth, for its nutrition, is sufficient from the mother's supply. And God's using that picture of himself as God, the one who provides and has everything we need. There, there's no lack in God to meet our deepest spiritual needs. And God is telling the people of Israel again and again, I am all sufficient. You don't need other gods. You don't need to go after the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Mesopotamians, um, or the peoples of the land, because I alone am a sufficient, living, true God. Uh, Think of those various passages, especially in the Psalms, where it talks about God being the portion of his people. You know how Psalm 16, Psalm 73 use that language of saying, God is my chosen portion. And I like that idea if you think of, say, a, um, a buffet, and uh, this doesn't fit exactly, but you know how you have all these options, but you want to get your best value for your money at the buffet. So it's like you want to go for the thing that costs them the most, right? You want the prime rib at the buffet. Or um, if you've learned at Pizza Ranch that actually the pizza is not the highlight of Pizza Ranch, it's the fried chicken. So you go for the fried chicken. Um, and in that sense, it's like saying, all I want is God. All these other options that the nations present of other gods, all I need is God. All I want is God. He is my chosen portion. The world is saying, oh, go after this and that, but I'm going to go after God. He, he's uh, my chosen portion because he is sufficient. Uh, Willemus Abrockel, an old Dutch theologian, says this, Such is our God, who is not only all-sufficiency in himself, but who with his all-sufficiency can fill and saturate the soul to such an overflowing measure that it has need of nothing else but to have God as its portion. Uh, What a beautiful thing to have our souls find their rest in God, right? Like we sing in that song, My soul finds rest in God alone. And so, okay, we we think of God's sufficiency for us, and sometimes this might get tricky because there are times where we we do lack certain things we feel we need in this world. And we do lack things that even God would intend for a perfect humanity. Uh, God's will is ultimately for there to be wholeness and restoration for all the corruption. And so I think we actually maybe need to think a little bit more about what are we saying when we're saying that God is actually all-sufficient for us? Because many of us lack lack health, the the perfect sort of uh, bodies and life that we'll have in the new creation. So first, I think one thing we need to recognize is that God's all-sufficiency is, first of all, it's a spiritual sufficiency to heal and reconcile the soul of man to himself. Uh, Our souls were designed uh, to rest in an infinite good, which is only found in God. Like St. Augustine said, that our hearts will be restless until they find rest in God. So God is all-sufficient as the resting place for our souls, and through Christ, the believer has no spiritual lack, right? We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And so in him, we are so sufficiently supplied before God to stand before him with confidence, to draw near to the throne of grace. But if we're thinking about all-sufficiency from a physical perspective— We don't yet experience it now, but God has provided fully sufficiently for the total physical restoration of all things in the world to come. 
Uh, God's sufficiency is there and it will heal every hurt. It will restore every broken heart. It will renew every hurting body. And God is all sufficient in that. We just aren't experiencing the fullness of it yet because we're living in this time between the ages where we have a foretaste of that future world, but we haven't yet experienced it. So in that sense, in the physical sense, there is a way in which God's all-sufficiency is yet for us to be experienced, but it's guaranteed and promised as our inheritance. Okay, so I think that's, just, that's a helpful nuance we, we need to think of. Yeah, God, God uh, meets our needs, especially our spiritual needs. Any, any questions or comments before we push on? All right, and here's, here's another thing I think is interesting to think about when we think about God's all-sufficiency. When we're thinking about even our spiritual needs, our emotional, mental, um, our physical needs, the way God... Okay, I should say it, back up. God doesn't often meet these needs directly, right? So in our soul, God does directly forgive us, but most of our needs are met through the help of instruments, through means God uses, and so we actually, in many times, in many ways, we get to be the expression of God's all-sufficiency to each other. We are a manifestation of God's sufficiency when we um, serve one another, providing goods and services that sustain life, when we provide joy, comfort, and protection in our various relationships, as we encourage one another, instruct one another, love and serve one another. We actually get to participate in God's all-sufficiency to his creation, which is pretty amazing. Um, think, look at this, this verse in Philippians 4.18. Paul says to the Philippian church, I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul had needs. He was deficient in physical resources. Other churches were deficient. And the Philippians wanted to supply those needs and be the sufficiency of God to Paul in his missionary journeys and to the churches. But the way they did that was by sacrificing of their own sufficiency. They actually chose to lack in order to minister the sufficiency of God to Paul. And Paul acknowledges this, and he says, hey, you're almost decreasing yourself so that we can increase, but I do know that in your sacrifice, my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ. And just as we apply that to ourselves, I think it's just really beautiful to think that um, we can confidently sacrifice in the work of the kingdom, whether that's with our, our resources or our time and energy, whatever it may be, because we can trust that God is all sufficient. We'll never ultimately truly lack because we have God and we have everything in Christ. And so we don't need to be afraid to sacrifice to be part of God's sufficiency to others. It's actually a wonderful way to participate in what God's doing in the world. God's all-sufficiency. Any comments or questions before we look at God's eternity? All right, God's eternity. We're, we're turning a corner into some, some of the deep stuff here. The confession says God is eternal. 
Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlastingness in both directions. And our minds can comprehend everlastingness going forwards, right? We can kind of imagine just life keeping on going and never stopping. But everlastingness backwards is basically impossible to, to comprehend. Because if you think of everlastingness backwards, if you, if you can keep going back forever, you never get to now. Because there would always have been a further amount of time to progress. You would never get to now. And so just this concept leads us to this idea of eternity. And what eternity means for God is that he has no beginning, no ending, but also no temporal succession. God is not in time. He's not going through a succeeding account of moments. And... The, the, the difficulty here is that our brains really can't think otherwise than thinking in time units. We are so time-bound that it's very difficult to imagine a being living not bound by time. Because, really, time itself is part of the created order. Time isn't just an idea that humans came up with to synchronize our schedules. Time is part of the fabric of reality, right? That was one of the discoveries in the last century was that space-time is actually one thing. Uh, they are not separate. Space-time itself is the field in which this universe lives. Space, time, and gravity is a, a large account of the existence, the fabric of reality. And so we can't escape time just like we can't escape space. Uh, the, the universe is integrated in this way. Uh, and the, yeah, they actually move together. They flex and time can bend and move at high speeds. Uh, all that quantum physics, uh, relativity stuff, it, it's wild. Um, but God himself, just as he doesn't live in our space, he doesn't live in our time. God is not in this time-space continuum. As we saw, he's a spirit, right? Not in our space, but he's also eternal which means he's not in our time. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Uh, I like that language. God inhabits eternity. That is the place of his existence, is eternity. God's not stuck in the present. Like, just think about what it means to be living in the present. The present is infinitely small. The future instantly becomes the past, in this infinitely small moment of time in which we exist. We're actually living in an infinitely small slice of time. Like, there's no space to the present. It's just a concept of change from future to past. And think of how binding that is to us. We cannot escape the present. We can't push it one second. We're so stuck in time. But God is so unlikely. He's so unbound by this idea of being trapped in the present. He inhabits eternity. He is the fullness of time um, in and of himself. And this is an, a major distinction between God as creator and us as creatures, is that we have a time-bound existence and he doesn't. Um, one, one way that might be helpful to illustrate this, which obviously is not going to be perfect, but if you think of our existence in time as like living on the perimeter of a circle, right? We're all in the perimeter and different moments in time, you can go backwards and 
distance yourself, say, okay, I'm this far from that moment in the past, I'm this far from that moment in the past, I'm this far from this moment in the future, or that. Um, wherever human history is on that continuum, um, you're distant from some other place. Whereas God is more like at the very center of the circle, and all moments of time are equally distant to God or equally near to God. There, there's no difference to God from a time way in our history versus way in the future. He sees it all at once, and it is all equally at hand to him. Again, it's hard for us to understand because it feels like God can't be in our future and our past. But we can't comprehend what it's like to not be on the edge of that circle. We can't understand what it's like to be in the middle totally. God is eternal. He is not in time. He inhabits eternity. And one way the Bible actually applies this is to say that this really means that God is such a fitting refuge for us. Deuteronomy 33:27 says, "The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath is the everlasting arms." And what's beautiful here is that it means God is never going to be surprised or caught off guard because he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He's in eternity. He's utterly trustworthy. And though the strongest refuges will decay in time, the strongest arms will weaken over time, God remains a permanent, fixed, eternal refuge and habitation for his people. Um, It's wonderful to serve a God like that, who's not trapped in time the same way we are. And further, for us at this moment, time is a gift to us. And here's what I mean. In 2 Peter 3.8, Peter says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The gift of time now is the gift of the patience of God, that we actually have time to repent, to flee from sin and run to Christ. And that's given to humanity for a long while. God's not slow, but he is patient. And so this time, this age of human history is an age for people to repent and know God. And so really in that sense, we can think of time as a gift of God's patience, that God doesn't call us all to account and call in all the debts right at this moment, but is patient, giving people time to repent. Uh, One more thing to note about time, just one question that comes up, is the idea, if we think of time in the new creation, in in heaven, if if you will, time in the new world, uh, sometimes it can be hard to think of living forever. And we think, that's so long won't I get bored? That, that sounds almost like, like a jail, that I'm just going to be trapped in heaven forever. Like, I can only play so many rounds of golf. I can only sing so many choruses of amazing grace. So what, how do we think of time in heaven? Will time even exist in heaven? Um, obviously, I can't be sure, but I, I do think time will exist in heaven. We're getting resurrection bodies again, and our bodies are bodies that live in time. They're created to interact with time and space. They change. But it's interesting, even in this earth, our perception of time changes radically based on our experience. The more joy you're experiencing, the the less perception you have of time. Right? If you're having a wonderful, engaging conversation with a friend and you're, it's three hours and you're like, where did the time go? I wasn't even aware of the elapsing of time. 
Whereas if you're like getting a filling at the dentist, you're like, when will this end? And it's like, it's been five minutes. And you're like, oh, it'll never end. So our perception of time changes based on our joy in the moment. And if heaven is going to be infinite joy offered to us, renewing joy coming from God himself, I don't think we'll even be aware of the passing of time. It'll be that, that idea of, oh, wow, 10,000 years have elapsed. Um, I've been praising God this whole time, and I'm glad that I don't have one less day to sing God's praise. I'm glad that I have just as much time as I had before to praise God forever. And I do think the joys of heaven will have time be no barrier to us, but something in which we live but, is, but does not limit us. Does, does, that, does, that, does that make sense? That seems fair? So, and on the converse side, it's hard to think of um, in, in the sufferings of hell to think that perhaps time might feel more slow than ever uh, because time slows down when we're in trouble. Um, sobering to think of. Living with God eternally. What a gift. Alrighty, so God is all sufficient. God is eternal. Um, God is now unchangeable. Any questions on God's eternity? All right. Okay. God's unchangeability, which is often called in theology his immutability, um, that God does not change. And And an implied idea from this is what we call also God's impassibility, the changelessness of, of his, um, um, his emotional being. And so God's unchangeableness is necessarily implied by God's eternity. Time is fundamentally the measure of change. That's how it works. Time and change are nearly one and the same. Time is the measure of change. And to be timeless is of necessity to be changeless. To change is to come into time. And if we admit any changingness in God, what we're admitting then is that God is in some sense bound to time, and we're shackling God to time, and really ungodding God by putting him in that state. So his eternity and his changelessness, they are mutually necessitating. If God doesn't change, that means that he's eternal. If he's eternal, it means he doesn't change. And let's consider what this means under a few different categories. First, let's think of how God's being itself does not change. God's being. In our time-bound existence, we are always gaining and losing something of ourselves. Think of all that you've lost from the past. You might have lost your youthful strength, your youthful hair color, your youthful naivety. These aspects of yourself are lost to the past. And there's parts of ourselves that we have yet to gain. There is wisdom we will have one day that we don't have now. We're going to lose. Sometimes we're in a state of pleasure and it's lost. We have states of suffering coming up that we will experience. We don't comprehend the whole of our life at once. And God's eternity and changelessness means that he comprehends the whole of his being all at once. That is, everything you could imagine in infinite life, everything that we would gain and lose moving through time, God has in fullness in himself. In his very being, he has the fullness of life and will never lose or gain anything in his life. 
It's really amazing. Uh, he's always the fullness of his self-existence. Uh, he says in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. And that's the covenant name of God. I am Yahweh. That is, I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I change not. God's being does not change. And as we saw under God's spirituality, God's spirituality implies God's personhood, his personality. And the aspects of God as persons in his being um, is similar to ours in that we can speak in a human way of God having a mind, a will, and affections. And it's helpful to think through that in each of these, God does not change. He doesn't pass through successive states of time, either in his thoughts, his will, or in his feelings. Okay, and this is, this is a tricky concept to understand, and it's very controversial in a lot of circles right now. And in the last hundred years, there's been an assault on God's changelessness to a fairly significant extent. So it's worth spending a bit of time on. So first, think God's mind does not change. God does not change his mind. Think of those situations where we change our mind. It's the result of having either bad information, uh, lacking proper information of the future, or just whimsical passions within us. Um, whether you know you're, you might have been dating someone, and then you realize, oh, they're like this. I don't really want to be with them. You get new information and change your mind. Or uh, maybe just fickle appetites. Um, if, if you were pregnant and in that time you like a food one day, you don't the next, uh, your mind changes so quickly. But this is not so with God. Numbers 23.19 says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's not like us. He doesn't lack information. He doesn't have whims that affect his mind. But you might be thinking, well, in scripture, it seems like God does change his mind at various points. Uh, we can think of changes in law, that at one time, God had all these laws about temples and cleanness, and now he doesn't. Uh, did God change his mind? How are we to think about these sorts of changes in scripture? Well, a changing of law from God does not necessarily imply a changing of mind, but a, merely a changing situation. Uh, you could imagine a scenario with, say, you have a 16-year-old, and you tell your 16-year-old that uh, curfew is 10 o'clock. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but let's imagine you're, the, the curfew is 10 o'clock, and then when they turn 18, you tell them uh, uh, curfew's midnight, and they say, what, Dad, Mom, you're so wishy-washy, you just change your mind. And you say, no, I'm not just arbitrarily changing my mind, but you are older, There's, it's a new situation, and it calls for a new appropriate response. Uh, my mind hasn't changed that, that it's good for you to have a curfew, that, that that's a good way to go about it, but the way this is being applied is changing depending on the situation. And so in God, his moral will, his mind of right and wrong, based on his nature, does not change, but the way he administers and applies um, his will to us in covenant relationship changes based on our own sort of maturity, 
kind of like that teenager growing up. And so the fact that things like the temple have been abolished, it's not a change in God's mind, but it's a change in how we relate to God as a people of God coming into a greater state of maturity, coming into a new way of living in relation to God. But it's not properly a changing of his mind, a wavering in his convictions or a wavering in his will. Because further, God's will does not change. This is very similar to his mind. Um, not just God's will for laws, but also God's will for human history does not change. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's will was always to redeem a people through Christ. Acts 4.28 tells us that, that what Herod and Pilate did to Jesus was simply what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. God's will for the human existence is not changing based on surprising new events, but was planned in eternity. All of world history was already in God's mind before it began. Um, any, any comments or questions on God's changelessness of mind and will? Good. I'm, you're either probably terribly confused or I'm just being incredibly clear. Uh, you take your pick. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to get to that in the next point. Yeah, 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 good. good. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, I put it under God's changeless uh, emotions, not his mind. Um, but it, it'll, it'll be resolved the same way. Okay, so lastly here, perfect, uh, is that God's affections do not change. There's the doctrine, what we call impassibility, is that God's passions, uh, those, those inclinations of loving and hating, um, they're changeless. Uh, the confession states that God is without body, parts, or passions. And some take this idea to mean that God doesn't have any passions. And obviously that leads people to think that that would turn God into a static, a robot, an unresponsive, feelingless being. But that's not the right way to think about this. God doesn't have lesser passions and affections than we do. He has far greater passions and affections than we do. God's love is an infinite love. God's hatred is an infinite hatred. His mercy is an infinite mercy. His kindness is infinite kindness. Um, God's passions are always perfectly appropriate, infinitely so, to every situation. So we're not talking about that God does not have something like these passions. What we're arguing is that he does not go through successive states of passion because he's not in time. He doesn't go through successive states of these sorts of feelings. And so we have to do, we do have to go back here a little bit. We discussed a couple weeks ago analogical thinking that what, what we say of God we're not saying something perfectly, fully true about God, but neither are we saying something that doesn't relate to God. All our speech of God is analogical in that it relates to God based on things we commonly understand. So just as our thoughts are not the same as God's thoughts, God doesn't have a brain that's involved in his thinking, our passions, what we feel as emotion or passion, is not the same as what we're saying when we're talking about God's passions. 
it's like ours, but it is also unlike ours. So we have to somewhat divorce ourselves from our own ideas of human emotion when we're thinking about God's passions. So we can't perfectly attribute our feelings to God. Uh, And God's passions are perfect and greater than ours. And his passions do not change. And so what's important here is that we're saying that God is not subject to whims of passion. He's not acted upon by external forces such to shake his being. Think of how easily your passions just arise and change. How quickly you can get frustrated at someone driving on the road or... Someone says a good joke and you instantly find it funny without any thought. In all those sorts of cases, uh, you're just being acted upon by these external forces and pulled around by your passions. And God's not like that at all. God isn't subject to the external world in a way that we can yank his chain and pull him around. Okay, we can change the order a bit. God doesn't go through successive emotional states as we, we do. So now getting to the passage of, um, the passages where it says that God regretted that he had made man, or regretted that he had made Saul king, or where God seems to move in scripture from a state of joy, um, approval of his people, say Israel, to a state of anger. God seems in scripture often to move from uh, a love to a hatred. Um, And we see that. But what the key to understanding this is that all change that we seem to see in God in Scripture is ultimately change from our side, not change from God's side. James 1.13 says that God is the father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow due to change. And we're all kind of like shadows. We change length, we grow and lengthen based on our relationship to the sun. The sun is the object that is not changing. And even though it seems to us like the sun is moving and causing differentiation in the shadows, it's actually we who are moving in relationship to the sun. And that's why we experience what seems to be change in the sun from our perspective. And God, as a perfect being, he has a perfect disposition a perfect inclination towards all things. In the sense that God's disposition towards the wicked is always displeasure. God's disposition towards the repentant is always mercy. And so when a wicked person repents, it's not that they are moving God and God is changing from wrath to kindness, but that as they have changed in a new position, they are relating to God in a different way than they were before. A kind of like, um, like even in the seasons around the sun, sometimes we feel like the sun is warmer than other times. We feel coldness from the sun or greater warmth, not because the sun is changing, but because our relation to it has changed and we are receiving the appropriate amount of warmth based on our distance from the sun. It's we who are changing even though it's fine to talk about the sun being warmer or less warm from our perspective. Or maybe another analogy 
is if you think of uh, white light, like a spotlight, all the colors that we differentiate are all found in white light. But the colors we see depend on how we are filtering that light. If we put a red or blue or green uh, filter on these lights, we would see red or blue or green, not because the light changed from red to green, but based on our reception of it, what we are experiencing of the light is the greenness or the redness. So it is with God, all his passions, his love, his hatred, are all there at all times. We just aren't um, experiencing them at all times because of the way our life is, in a sense, filtering. So it's not that God is changing from one color to the next. He has all affections perfectly, but our reception of them is based on our relationship to God. Um, does, does that help? Does anyone want some clarification on that? Clear? D does that make sense? It's we who change, even though it seems like God is changing, it's all in him at once. God doesn't go through changing emotional states, but acts perfectly according to his will. Um, and consider again, God doesn't get angry. He doesn't get grieved. God expresses the what we might call the anger or grief or love part of himself perfectly based on the situation. And you can kind of think of a distinction here for you guys who are parents, and you know sometimes that your child just frustrates you and it, it makes you displeased with them without really much thought on your part. It just happens. But there's other times where, uh, this is where it probably most often happens, where your child does something wrong, but they kind of do it in a funny way, and you're like, just wait. I should not laugh here, even though this is funny, that was naughty, and the appropriate thing for me as a parent to do is to express my displeasure with them. So you, instead of reacting with your laughter or whatever, you choose to express displeasure, even though you're not feeling it like it rose up in an emotion, because that is the right way to respond in that situation. And not perfectly like that, but in that same way, we can say that God's expression of his passions toward this world are not these uprisings arbitrarily, but it is the intentional, purposeful expression of his perfect lovingness and hatingness towards good and evil in all our various situations. And so that's a comfort to us because we can trust that we're not just going to anger God suddenly and he'll eventually throw some lightning bolts at us because God is not thrown around by us in that way. All his actions towards us are intentional, and his response with kindness or mercy or justice is the perfectly appropriate response in every situation, uh, which is a wonderful comfort to us. And so what we can also then trust here is that for us who are in Christ— is that because we have this permanent relationship to God in Christ now interceding for us, that God's disposition towards us as saved is always going to be perfect, infinite, unabating love and patience and kindness. Every disposition of God that God has towards us in Christ is an infinite passion. Your love for your spouse or your children is nothing compared to the infinite love God has for his people in Christ. 
His passions are stronger than ours. His love, Song of Songs says, is is a jealous, unquenchable fire towards us. And so we don't need to doubt for one moment God's heart towards us who trust in Christ because his infinitely perfect passions are always targeted towards his people. Uh, And God remains infinitely, passionately loving towards us even in our worst moments. And so far from being a sad thing that God is um, impassable, it's a wonderful comfort to us and something we can trust and hope in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God all-sufficient. You are eternal and you are unchanging. We thank you that you don't change like shadows, that, 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 that you will never move out of your loving disposition towards us in Christ. Help us to trust you more, to be your sufficiency in each other's lives, and to love you all our days. We pray for your help in our worship this morning and ask your blessing on our day for Jesus' sake. Amen.